0: In the name of God, creator, redeemer, and giver of life. Amen. Good morning. Can you hear me okay? I got my double shots. So it was early on a Saturday afternoon, just a few days before Christmas, 1984. But Bernie was not feeling the Christmas spirit. In fact, he was feeling extremely afraid, because Bernie was riding the number two subway train from the Bronx into Manhattan, and four black teenagers entered the train and sat next to him. One of them asked Bernie for $5. In reply, Bernie pulled out a illegal 38 caliber handgun and started shooting. 1.6 1.6 seconds later, his gun was empty, and all four of the young men were bleeding on the floor. They all miraculously survived, but one 19-year-old Daryl Cabey, was shot through the spine and has been in a wheelchair ever since. If you were alive in 1984, and I suspect most of us were, you heard all about Bernie, Bernard Getz, the famous subway vigilante. The case dominated the news for months, with the public split between those who called him a hero and those who thought he was a racist who overreacted. The Manhattan district attorney tried to convict him on four counts of attempted murder. But in the end, he was convicted of just one count of possession of an illegal firearm. And he was sentenced to one year in jail. He served eight months. His only defense, and it was really the only defense that he needed, was simply that he was afraid. I found myself remembering Bernie Goetz this week after I heard that the Supreme Court has agreed to hear a case that would do away with the only law that Bernard Goetz was found to have violated. In other words, if the Supreme Court decides this case the way most people think it will, the next time someone opens fire on four young black men simply because he's afraid, he'll walk. Our scripture this morning tells us that perfect love casts out fear. Well, if that's true, perfect love has got a lot of work to do around the world these days because we are increasingly tilting toward fear. News and social media outlets are making mountains of money by perfecting the art of making us afraid. Our phones and computers now automatically drive scary stories and fantasies and lies and conspiracies to the very front of our brains, just so that we will click on that link. And that is why, according to a recent study, for the first time since they started measuring these things, most Americans, Republicans, and Democrats believe that members of the opposite political party are not just opponents, they are enemies. Enemies. In fact, these, uh, these scholars, described a shift from a culture of love to a culture of hate. Some years ago, I had the pleasure of hearing one of my favorite writers, Marilyn Robinson, speak on this scripture verse, Perfect Love Casts out Fear. She said, we can't seem to get over the idea that we're under attack. We're stuck in psycho-emotional bomb shelters, she said. I had to write that down. Psycho-emotional bomb shelters. When in reality, we Westerners are more free, more safe, more stable than most people throughout history have ever hoped to be. So she said, why can't we just enjoy it? This prosperity, this security. If there have ever been people on earth who should be able to take a deep breath and say, thank you, God, we are that people. But instead, people feel so justified in fear, she said, that they see nothing wrong with shooting a man simply because they feel threatened. We've begun to rationalize preemptive defense, she said. Who do you want to shoot? Which image of God has been getting on your nerves lately? I mean, let's face it, there are a lot of people who are not good judges of the degree to which others are a threat to them. Meanwhile, and that was some years ago, and meanwhile, killings of black men have not declined since George Floyd's murder, despite the unprecedented displays of support for Black Lives Matter. And the other major industry that makes money from fear, the gun industry, is seeing to it that any paranoid lunatic can legally carry a handgun into a subway car filled with people he has been taught to fear. So here's the problem. Everything I've just said is true and with all my fulminating i'm just adding to the fear aren't i in fact for the past few minutes i've been trying kind of hard to make you feel more afraid preachers have been doing this since the beginning of time we felt that our obligation to warn and to moralize and to castigate and sometimes to make you afraid it's very good for the religion business And it's not that there aren't good reasons to be afraid. There are scientifically proven, fact-based, peer-reviewed reasons to be terrified. But fear, you know, is not always helpful. Fear creates hatred. And according to 1 John, those who say, I love God and hate their brothers or sisters are liars. This is the paradox that we live in now, that on the one hand, there are millions of very good reasons to be afraid. There are all kinds of ways to work ourselves into a fearful lather. And on the other hand, living in fear only makes everything worse. If we're going to break the cycle of fear, hatred, and violence, we need to learn how to recognize the fear in us and separate the facts from the fiction about that fear. And then we've got to learn how to move forward into love. How do we do that? Well, the first thing, of course, is just to take Marilyn Robinson's advice and take a breath. Let's just do that for a second, if you could. Do it with me, if you would. Just, let's just take a little mindfulness moment together. I invite you if, you, if you will, to take a deep breath. Close your eyes if you feel comfortable doing that. Take a nice cleansing exhale, and let your shoulders relax while you breathe out. And when you inhale, let your belly relax. Let your breath come from your belly. Then take a nice relaxing inhale again and an exhale and just listen to your breath for a second and do you feel that the way that kind of you kind of relax into a more Just a more open field. It's amazing how a little bit of mindfulness can cast out fear. It works because fear, you know, fear lives in our minds, but only in our minds, whereas God lives everywhere. In the body, in the earth, in every person we meet, in every particle of the universe, when we can just take a moment and come home to the way that our bodies are inhabiting this earth and this earth is inhabiting our bodies there's no fear there when we're about to go into surgery for example we've got a choice right we can focus on all the statistical probabilities and all the things that could theoretically go wrong we can imagine all kinds of potential catastrophes Or we can take a moment and listen to our bodies, and we can feel the miracle of oxygen entering our bloodstream. We can feel those billions of white blood cells as they surround and chase down bacteria. And suddenly, we we don't feel so alone and powerless. we become aware of this unstoppable force of healing that lives inside us. It lives and works in there, whether we believe in it or not. And we can surrender to that force of healing and let it do its work. Some of us call that prayer. That's where God lives, in our bodies, working on our behalf. God is alive, whether we're aware of it or not but it sure helps when we take a moment to feel that power alive in our bodies, when we simply come to our senses, literally, and really let reality speak rather than our sad little brains, our sad little brains, those pathetic meaning-making machines. If we could just learn how to do that more. This is why Jesus invites us to abide in him as he abides in us. We I am the vine, you are the branches, he says, abide in me, he says. It's as easy as taking a breath and feeling God's presence pulsing through your body. And by the way, have you ever wondered when you heard this verse, I am the vine, you are the branches, Have you ever wondered, wait a minute, what's the difference between the vine and the branches? Where does the vine leave off and the branches begin? And the answer, of course, is that there is no separation. There is no distinction. We are all connected. The vine is in us, and we are in the vine, all of us. This is what contemplatives throughout the centuries have been trying to teach us. Thomas Merton said, Christianity is not merely a doctrine or a system of beliefs. It is Christ living in us, uniting us to one another in his life. Cynthia Bourgeau reminds us that contemplative prayer deepens our capacity to abide in the state of attention of the heart. Attention of the heart, a stable state of mindfulness or witnessing presence emanating from the heart, not the head. Once you get the hang of it, she says, attention of the heart allows you to be fully present to God, but at the same time fully present to the situation at hand, giving and taking from the spontaneity of our own authentic surrendered presence. In her book, Wisdom, Jesus, Burgeau says, we flow into God, and God flows into us because it is the nature of love to flow. I love that. It is in the nature of love to flow. Abide in him, and that love flows. Don't worry so much about believing in him. Get out of your head and just abide in God. Sit with Jesus, breathe with him, and hear his breath in yours. Listen to him. Listen to him, and soon you'll discover that it is actually that he is listening to you. Love him, and your love will become a channel for his love, and that will spread, like the gospel, to every corner of the world. Please, God. May it be so. Amen.